Hey, welcome back to Truth in Rhythm. I'm your host, Scott Goldfine, and we're picking it up after yesterday we had some connection issues, and we got the Stone City Band in the house, Lenise and uh, Nate Hughes, and we were just, uh, again, to the, the point in the story where things explode in 1981 with the Street Songs album, incredible record. It all coalesced and came together, strong from start to finish, Give It To Me Baby, Super Freak, Find Desire with Tina Marie. So I want to know what changed that made it go to another plateau and how did you all react to it when, when it got to that point? <laughs> That's a funny story there. You know, we were in the studio. It was long because we recorded two albums at the same time. We did Street Songs and the Stone City Band's second album, Boys Are Back at the same time, back to back. And uh, we was there a good what, four or five months up in Sausalito at the record plant recording. And the, just uh, the mentality and the attitude and you know everybody's performance, that was like the hate album. <laughs> You know, we couldn't wait to, you know, record and get some, you know, relaxation, you know, because we had been steady touring and in the studio. We'd never had time for ourselves. So that was pretty much, you know, uh, like an angry type mode. <laughs> and we put our all in all into it. And that was the representation what came out at the end. Attitude the album. Yeah. <laughs> one of our best pieces of work. So when you started hearing the final mixes and it came together, I mean, were you like, wow, this is incredible? Yes. Oh, yeah, with we the was... magic of Tom Fly. Yes, yeah. incredible engineer. Yeah. You know, and what Rick and Levi put together in the studio, you know, we couldn't wait for it to get on the airwaves so that everybody else could hear, you know, the finished product. Right. Then when we started hearing Give It To Me, that was the first single, heard that on the airplay, a big smile came over my face. <laughs> I said, at last, you know, this, this has got to be our ultimate piece, you know, because it was kind of a, a do or die. You know, if this didn't work, you know, I think we would have, like, dropped a couple of notches. But, you know, it was our best piece. And the success of Give It To Me, Baby. You know, when the second single came out, which was Super Freak, that took us completely over and crossed over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was a double whammy at that time. And we were out on the road at that time when they released Super Freak, and they just skyrocketed. You know, and it was like endless. It's a, we stayed up for 26 weeks and number one. Mm -hmm. You know, and how I knew we had a successful album, we knocked out the Isley Brothers for the summer. Because, you know, every summer was the Isley Brothers. <laughs> we knocked them out the pocket for the summer of 81. Yeah. And, you know, Super Freak wasn't uh, one of Rick's favorite tunes. <laughs> he didn't, it caught him off guard when it did that well. <laughs> He thought it was too fast or too silly or what? No, he just, it was like a 
a fill-in almost. Yeah, it was like a throwaway tune. <laughs> but it hit, and everybody loved it. You know, it just yeah, took really us good. over to the next level. It had a great story to it, you know, which people you know connected with. Yeah, really crossed over, and and like you said, uh, Lenice, the baseline to uh, "Give It to Me, Baby" when I first came on the radio. I mean, it was just, mm, you know, and oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and Super Freak. That long version was killer too. That was yeah. on the twelve inch. Was that yeah. uh, that sounded like it was actually how you recorded it, not extended? Was it actually recorded that way? <laughs> <laughs> the magic of Tom Fly. Well, we watched him splice splice the tape to make it longer. So that was uh, just in the studio like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did a great job on that. Oh, he's yeah. a master. I learned a lot from him. So what other cuts on? I mean, Get a Life was also a killer track. Um, yeah. Mr. Policeman, Got the Reggae Going. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then right around that time, it was uh, The Boys Are Back came out, right? Right. Yeah. Right. We had the song Funky Reggae. Yeah. yeah. You know, that was climbing the chart at that time, you know, because that came out before Street Songs. And we was getting a lot of airplay, you know, people was loving it. And all of a sudden, they threw out, give it to me, baby. And our song disappeared. <laughs> and that Stone City Band album also, it, it started with All Day and, and All the Night, which um, was the first track I had heard, I think. And uh, that was another really strong one, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. I could thank the Kinks for that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but you guys, you know, a lot of times people, people do covers and they don't bring that much to it. But I thought the way mm-hmm. you did it, you definitely brought something new to what was, you know, so many bar bands and everything played that song. But what you guys brought to it, you brought some funk to it, you brought some attitude to it, and it was, it was different. Yeah. It was nice. We brought it up to the New Wave era. <laughs> you know, made it electronic, yeah. funky and electronic, you know, and still had the same, you know, feeling as the original, but brought it, you know, half and half. Who were you and uh, and Rick and other guys in the band kind of keeping your ear to on the radio during those days? You know, I mean, were you listening to some new wave to get that inspiration? Were you listening to what other, you know, funk bands were doing? No, that was our own flavor. Yeah. You know, we rarely got a chance to listen to the radio because <laughs> we, we was always in the studio. <laughs> Would Rick get mad if he heard you listening to something else? <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's just we were busy learning yeah. songs, rehearsing and sure. rehearsing and going straight into the studio. Yeah. Spend that time rehearsing. Land down the rhythm section, then overdubs, then the vocals, and then whatever added musicians added on. That took the time. And after we got out of that, we started rehearsals for the tour. I stopped. We didn't really get a chance to sit down and listen to the radio. You know, wanted to keep our own sound. You know, we didn't want to hear something and nibble off of that. And we rather have our own sound. And that's what 
you know, most of the group funk bands that did at that time. Um, everybody had their own particular sound. Today, everybody sound the same because everybody got the same electronic gear in the studio. Yeah, that's a shame for sure. Yes. Now, of course, you couldn't help but hear other bands when you were on those, um, you know, funk fests and some of those tours. So, mm-hmm. uh, were were there anybody uh, at that time that you were like, "Wow, these guys really take it to the stage," also, or um, did anyone impress you that way? Well, everybody had their own flavor, but it didn't necessarily, you know, make you where we wanted to take something of theirs and put it in with ours. You know, it wasn't like that, but, you know, we had several acts out there. Cameo was doing their thing. Barcades was doing their thing. Zap. Yeah, Zap. Hey, everybody, everybody was throwing down at that time. Yeah. You know, and we loved listening to their music. Now, I think it was around this time or maybe just before, maybe it was on the um, Fired Up tour, but there was somewhere in there where uh, Rick, toured with Prince briefly and uh, things didn't work out great. And there's been a lot of like rumors about what happened on that tour and that there was a sort of feud between them. So I got to ask you, what, what, what can you tell me about that tour and, and what happened? That tour, we were inside the studio and uh, Rick asked us, you know, what do you think about having Prince open up for us on our next tour? And everybody said, yeah. You know, because we we liked the song that he had out at the time um, on Be Your Lover. And we thought it was a great idea. So he got on the tour with us. He was our opening act for the Fired Up Tour. Um, That first night, it was a shocker because we didn't expect this. One thing, we didn't know he was that short. (laughs) You know, we we were standing uh on the side before yeah. we went to the locker room and rick said there he is and everybody was looking and he saw the rest of the band but we didn't, we see, didn't him. see him and we said where and he said right there and, and we looked down and out, there he was <laughs> we didn't know he was that short but when he got on stage, yeah. uh, he was full of fire, you know. Electrifying. Yes, rock attitude, him, Dez, Andre Simone. Uh, they had the rock movement like the Rolling Stones. You know, they was posing and sounding good. They had a powerful sound. Yeah. But at the very beginning, the audience didn't know what to think of them because that was brand new to them. Right. You know, our audience, and we entered we basically introduced him to a different audience you know and eventually they you know got warmed up to him you know his uh outfits at the time was a, quite a shocker you know, yes <laughs> we didn't expect that <laughs> you know but um as far as uh a rivalry and you know madness and attitudes and people being mad at one another media rumor yeah you know they wanted to build it the the prince of funk meets the king of funk and yeah. all that and they just labeled it as that it was no fighting or nothing going on at the time not at all so in later years there wasn't sort of like a 
tension between them or something like that. And I mean, there were rumors that um, Denise Matthews was part of, um, I don't know, the, the, the um, Rick James's band or the Mary Jane girls or something and then became Vanity. Was there anything to that? Oh, no. No, <laughs> we never heard that. Never heard that you know. one. It's you know, out there. Yeah. We, we did hear that um, Vanity's sister knew Rick yeah. before she did. You know, and um, uh, he, he did uh, speak with you know, he spoke aloud that he wanted to put, Rick wanted to put a girls group together, you know, and uh, then Prince came out with Vanity. And of course their attire was the lingerie, you know, and they came out first with theirs, you know, and then Rick came out with the Mary Jane girls later on, you know, which took it a, a step further. You know, because they they also had tunes that related in real life. You know, they spoke about, you know, love, you know, affairs, breakups, everything. You know, and they caught on very well. Mm -hmm. The first album, you know, they went out on tour. Uh, I think it was uh, Cold-Blooded. Yeah. It's Cold-Blooded. No, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Mary Jane girls, that first album, I think, had Candyman. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and then they had other hits, too, like uh, In My House might have been on this next album. But they had at least, like, four hits, I think, and just two records. Mm -hmm. And um, what was it like playing with them? Did you actually uh, play with them in the studio, or did they come in later? How did that work? Um, and also, why did they end up only doing two records? I mean, it seemed like they were really, you know, on a roll, but then they just kind of disappeared. Well, uh, I mean, we we laid some tracks, you know, Rick, he wanted us to lay some tracks and uh, he put the girls on there. First he put uh, Jojo on there doing leads. He did the, the demos first and then uh, he gave them to Jojo and then Jojo expanded on it. And then he put backgrounds on later. Um, we had a great time, you know, playing behind the girls, but uh, about the girls, I mean, you know, they weren't work workaholics like we were, <laughs> you know, they, they kind of got bored after a while, you know, being on the road and whatnot, and they, they wanted to go home, you know, and it, it wasn't our repertoire to like quit on a, a tour to go home and rest. I mean, we, we like to work and we, we were used to working. Um, two albums, uh, the second album, I think Jojo, she got, she got married on the second album, didn't she? Yeah, she, she, she took a break and got married and some static went on, you know, between Rick and whatever happened, you know, I don't know the details, but all of a sudden, you know, girls were squashed. And that was it, you know, I don't know what happened. Hmm. It just disappeared. Was there much stuff that you guys remember recording that never actually got released or did it pretty much all come out eventually? 
Well, the third album that we recorded never got released. Right. So that got canned, the third one. Some of the girls? Yeah. But I mean, you know, the band also did uh, an album that wasn't released. Uh, at least we had the demos done and it was never shot. You know, it was a lot of tension happening at that time. So uh, that never happened. And, you know, Rick got into that lawsuit with Motown and um, everything just got wacky. I mean, you know, the band had to survive. So, you know, we started splitting up a little at a time, you know, doing other jobs. Well, I wanted to uh, step back just a minute again um, to that second Stone City Band album. I noticed in the credits, yeah. it shows Rick playing harmonica, guitar, drums. And I was curious, you know, um, what do you think his best talents or contributions were as a musician? And then also apart from being a musician? Well, keyboards and uh, rhythm guitar. He loved acoustic guitar. You know, I think that goes back to Neil Young days. Yeah, so he probably did most of his writing on those instruments, I'm guessing. Yes, especially on keyboard. And so he would um, arrange, produce, compose, what about on that side of it? Um, what do you think he was most gifted at or what really stood out, you know, aside from the actual playing of the instruments? Everything you named. <laughs> he, was, he was great at it. You know, arranging the music. He, he could hear, he could make up a tune and hear exactly how he wanted it, you know, from the, from the basic scratch of the rawness of the, the rhythm section. And whatever he wanted to add on, he could hear horns, he could hear strings, vocals, you know, a whole different melody. He could do that in his head, you know. And that's how he would layer everything when we go into the studio. He knew exactly what he wanted, you know, because we, we would rehearse a song and he would take a tape. At that time, we was recording on a cassette tape. We would uh, record it. He would take it home, listen to it overnight, and come back with something else added on to what we had learned the night before. You know, so he would build on it. He would take it a little at a time, listen to it, and come back and add on. And he would tell us what he wanted us. Yeah, he was a master at layering tracks. And he was also great at letting us put in what we felt in the song. You know, he might have an idea, but he wanted your particular feel on it, not his. Yeah, he would ask you like a song and we'll give him an idea. He either say yes or then, you know, no. Uh, you know, he just gave us that freedom. Yeah, so I was going to ask you is like how much did you get to actually contribute? And I wanted to ask, you know, was there anything that 
was unique to your particular style and playing drums or playing percussion um, that you kind of had that you thought was, well, this is kind of my signature, this little like quirk or this little nuance that I, that I do, this is kind of like the Lemise or the, or the Nat thing, you know, was there anything like that that maybe people can even listen for when they listen to the Stone City Band songs and the Rick James songs? The solid beat, the back beat, you know, the two or the four. Strong as point. Uh, I was like John Bonham, you know, from Led Zeppelin in a funk world. You know, I had the, I had the power, the heaviness, and I had the drive. You know, me and the bass player, you know, we connected. You know, we had a, a special sound. You know, he knew where I was going at all times, you know. And Tom on guitar, he would fill in right. And Levi Ruffin would add his little synthesizers. You know, he, everybody blended well. We just had a certain magic. And we had been playing together so long that everybody knew how everybody felt, you know, and where the movement was going. Because all somebody had to do was play one particular lick and uh, just like that. So did you get many uh, drum solos up on stage? Were you uh, one of those players that yeah, likes to have drum the, solos? At the end of the night, I did a little solo. It started off long and then it got short, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because of the audience participation, you know, we was running close to overtime, you know, and that could cost money. That's big money when you go over time. Yeah, thousand dollars a minute. So I had a certain amount of time to do what I did best. And I had a nice little solo at the end, like you can see in the, the Rock vs. Germany show. You know, you can see my little solo at the end of that. But on tour, yeah, I had solos. Yeah. They didn't last for five minutes. <laughs> it would showcase, you know, the artist off and on, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's cool how he felt that night. Yeah. <laughs> if we had to spin anything, then I would get a longer time. You know, yes. when you were on the road, what, what was the scene like? And um, give me a couple of stories that are funny or were maybe a little scary. A couple, a couple stories. Okay. Well, the first one, I like to say we were inside uh, a mall. I think it was Dallas or Indianapolis somewhere. It was inside, uh, at the time it was called Peaches Records. We were just, you know, just a band. We were looking at, you know, some records, you know, looking at uh, um, everybody's records. And we were trying to pick out some jazz hits and some rock music. And it was like six people in the store. So we was steady walking around looking. Then a few more people came in the door. And the next time we looked up, the whole place was filled with people. And all of a sudden, the, the owner of the place came over to us and said, listen, it's a huge crowd outside <laughs> wanting to come here. They're buying up my, my um, you know, all the albums and cassette tapes just to get a glimpse at us. And he said, I have a back door. I'm gonna take you to that back door. 
and it's a storage room. He said, anything you need, you know, just grab and then make your way out the door. And I tried to hold, you know, the crowd here. And that's what we did. We went out the back way and we came out the side and we looked down the whole hallway was trying to get into that record store to get towards us. And when they saw us on the other end of the mall, we had to take off running. It was like the Beatles and <laughs> you know, the Jackson Five. We was running for our life. <laughs> you know, it was that that was a little bit scary to us. Yeah. You know, and then everywhere we was going, a huge crowd was surround us. Everybody wanted to get autographs, take pictures, and everything. It was fun for a minute. Then it just got scary because of it. the crowds kept getting bigger and bigger. And it wasn't safe, you know, to be around that many people without security. So we had to travel everywhere with security around us, you know, to keep us out of situations like that. Um, another time, uh, we was doing a performance, and we was on stage, and all of a sudden, the lights came on, and. Uh, we had to get off the stage and go towards the back. So we was when we got off stage, we went towards the back. And everybody was saying, "Well, what's wrong?" You know, and Rick had came out and told us that SWAT was at the building. They was on the side of the building. They wanted to stop the concert. And uh, Rick, Rick um, was talking on the microphone and asked people, you know, did they want the show stopped? You know, and the whole crowd just hollered out, no, they wanted to, it to continue. So we was coming back out and uh, we was performing and everybody got back into the show. And all of a sudden, Rick's valet came out in his cape because Rick was wearing this cape every time he left the stage. His valet came out in the cape. And we was wondering, you know, if that was Rick, because all of a sudden he looked a little smaller. <laughs> and then when he lifted up his head, we saw who it was. So we were really laughing to ourselves, but the audience didn't know the difference. They thought it was actually Rick on stage. You know, he changed clothes and left out with security and disappeared. And we ended the show with the valet dance, and he never did sing or anything. He just came out and made gestures like he was Rick. And we kept on playing, and then we just ended the song. And <laughs> everybody just thought, you know, that was the ending, and that was Rick going off stage. And Rick was gone already. They yeah. wanted to arrest him on stage and yeah. take him out. You know, they confiscated our equipment. We had to rent gear for our next performance until that situation got, you know, fixed because it was some some promoter that um, wanted to do a show with Rick, but he didn't ask Rick's permission to do the show. And he reneged on the concert and the people wanted their money back. So they had a warrant out on Rick thinking it was Rick that did it. And, and it finally came out that it was somebody else that tried to do a show. He got the upfront money for it. You know? What city was that? Ah, 
it's I think Indianapolis or Dallas one of yeah. one of those shows. I can't remember exactly. Rick was quite a prankster. Uh, one time uh, we did a gig in New York City, and uh, actually Rick gave everybody a wake up call but me and Danny. And they left town and left us in New York. All right. Like home alone. So he can find us. Okay. Because <laughs> we wouldn't make sound check. But what happened, me and Danny, we uh we uh rented uh, a limo and uh we took the, the limo from New York to uh, Baltimore and we actually got there at the same time as Rick, you know. <laughs> And he flew. He figured it out. And that made him mad. Because <laughs> he didn't think we would make it. So the uh, the fame that y'all got, it was exciting at first, but then it was like a little too, you were like, whoa, I, I know about this. Yeah, I mean, it, it mostly it was all good, you know. It was just those few scary moments, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Most of it was pretty good, you know. I, I really enjoyed, you know, hanging out, you know, with the entertainers. Like we got a chance to go and hang out in Studio Fifty Four when it was booming. Yeah, you know, that was something brand new to us. And, uh, that was fun. You know, we got to hang out in New York City, you know, went out to dinner at this club called Justine's and got to hang out with Phyllis Hyman, Ashford and Simpson. Mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 it had its good moments. Mm -hmm.